Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In Podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Virginia. Hello, Louise. <laughs> hello, divers, and hello, Fansa members. Welcome again to our podcast, Diving In. And this is the second episode we're recording for the Fansa Fringe season in London. The Fansa Fringe Festival this year has been designed to coincide with and complement a very special program of arts events in Britain and Australia, which celebrate the strong ties and cultural connections between our two countries. We're sitting here in my studio study in Western Australia. Yes, we are. It's a bit of a dull day, isn't it, really? Yes. It's spring, but we are feeling mighty fortunate not to be in lockdown like the yeah. rest of Australia. Yeah, we're so lucky. So lucky. And we have another swag of great books to share. We do. So do you want to get started? I will. I'll, I'll kick off with my first one. So the first book that I am going to talk about today is called The Truth About Her by Jacqueline Maylie. Jacqueline Maley is a columnist and a senior writer for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspapers. This is her debut novel. I absolutely love this book, although in the beginning I did have a few little niggles and I'll come back to those, but uh, I don't want to focus on those at the beginning. The main character in this is a journalist named Susie and Susie has written an expose about a social media influencer mm. named Tracy who has faked having cancer and has been rewarded with a lucrative publishing deal. Oh. And this book of Tracy's uh, promoted clean recipes um, and smoothies <laughs> that were curing her cancer. Of course. And she had received this massive advance from the publishing house to publish her book. And the novel begins when Susie, the journalist, receives a whole lot of texts or she realises she's missed, missed some texts from her editor at work, letting her know that Tracy, the influencer, has taken her own life oh. after having been exposed by Susie as a fraud. And Tracy had never had cancer and her whole artifice of creating clean smoothies to cure her cancer has come crumbling down and she's taken her life. And at this point, everything starts to go horribly wrong for Susie, oh. the journalist, largely through her own efforts at self-sabotage, I must say. Susie's been having an affair with a married man, whilst also sort of loosely dating a really nice man, mm. really decent guy. And the wife of her lover, the man that she's been having the affair with, finds out about the affair. And so... Yes. Things don't go well there. Then Susie has been sued for defamation, oh. or at least her newspaper has received the writ. Um, to do with? A completely different oh. thing. Everything's going pear-shaped for her. So 
she receives a writ and it's over an article which she had omitted to get checked by the newspaper's lawyers before sending it to print. It was one of those moments where she got a call from the daycare centre to say that she had to come and pick her daughter up and she was in a hurry. Every mother knows this sort of scenario. And she thought, oh, this will be fine and sent it to print and it wasn't fine. So, as I said, everything's gone pear-shaped in her life. And then after the funeral of Tracy, the young cancer faker, Susie starts receiving these very strange letters and parcels in the mail, and the parcels contain things that belonged to Tracy. And then Tracy's mother makes an appearance in Susie's life in a very menacing way. It is so gripping. Oh, it sounds fantastic. It's really gripping. And Susie's life just starts to spiral right down. And the depiction of the mother of Tracy is absolutely brilliant. I felt as though I had met her myself. I felt like I knew her. She's very larger than life. Mm. And she's both very sinister and very comedic if you can imagine (laughs) that's quite hard to achieve but although clowns clowns are quite sinister yes good point Mm. yes absolutely so what Jacqueline Maley does is with this character is she has her wearing those Maasai sandals yes you know those big (laughs) sandals that rock backwards and forwards (laughs) and it just gives this woman a very comedic oh I love it but is that just lulling us into a false sense mm. of security when we're sort of laughing at the mm. Messiah sandals or the way they're depicted? And Susie's parents are also so acutely described that you feel as though you know them too. It's really well done. And the story has this sort of massive forward propulsion that meant that I read it in just over a day, actually. Wow. It's not yeah. a small book either. No, it's it's quite substantial. I just had to know what was... <laughs> I felt so worried. I felt so worried for Susie <laughs> and Susie's daughter. I felt worried for their safety and particularly worried for the safety of her young toddler mm. at some mm. moments. And the fear escalates and you feel that you alone can see what Susie is not seeing. Yes. And that really adds to your... A sense of dread, I think, because you feel like she has not got her alerts up. No. So it's interesting. When you started talking, I thought this was going to be a story about the fraud. But, in fact, it's just that was a vehicle to really be a story about Susie. It's really about Susie's life. It's really about Susie. Yeah. And maybe the fallout from people that commit those frauds and the impact it has on the family because the mother's story is very interesting and then there are other members of the family and I'm not going to give anything away there. So the sense of foreboding is really well done and there is a scene in this where I was scrabbling to turn the pages. I was so scared about what was going to happen. It's very gripping. But it also has romance. It has lots of twists and turns. And there, there's one false steer in it, which I really need to talk to someone about. So yes. I've got to yes. find someone who's ready. Well, that's clever if it did actually steer you. Yeah. So I think there's quite a lot of material in here that is drawn from her life and biographical detail in the story, but it's not autobiographical, I think. So to the extent that the main protagonist, Susie, is a journalist and the mother of a young daughter, then I think Jacqueline Maley has drawn on her own experiences. And that does give the book an edginess and a sense of reality that I loved. You could tell she was completely mastering the story about the newsroom and the meeting with the lawyers she really knew what she was talking about. 
But the main character in this story is doing pretty much everything she can to burn everything in her life to the ground. <laughs> and to that extent, it's fiction. Yes. And there, there is a good arc to her development. Let's mm. just put it that way. So she does seem to be burning everything to the ground, but there's a good journey there, I think. The only negative I had, which I foreshadowed, is that for about the first 30 or 40 pages, there were just too many similes. Oh, really? <laughs> and I think that's not an uncommon thing in debut novelists and probably being picky. Yeah, but well, experimenting prefer with language. Just feeling like they have to explain everything to you and saying this was like this and this was... Yes, instead okay. Instead of leaving it to the reader. Yes, I, trusting it, the reader, yeah. yeah. Just a bit too bit too florid. But clearly that fell away for you. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it just got better edited as it went yeah. on or... I just stopped noticing because the yeah. story was so good, but I completely stopped noticing after about 40 pages, mm. I suppose, and I was completely immersed in the story. And in every other way, her writing is absolutely fantastic. So if any of this seems familiar, or even if it seems far-fetched, I do recommend that you go and have a, a, a little Google around the case of a young Australian woman, very much alive, uh, named Belle Gibson, mm. who faked having cancer and was rewarded with a very lucrative publishing deal. And raised a huge amount of money from yeah, people too, didn't she? and raised money on her social media accounts. Oh, she had a massive fraud. following in social yeah. media. That's a very interesting story. So I think Jacqueline Malley might have been a bit inspired by that, but there have been a few people yes. who've done similar things. So that was The Truth About Her by Jacqueline Maley, and it's published by Fourth Estate, uh, HarperCollins. Oh, fantastic. Mm. Well, I'm going to change the pace slightly the first book I'm going to talk about is Love in Theory by Elodie Cheeseman. What a lovely name. Yeah. This is a very sort of contemporary, delightful story with a serious side of 24-year-old lawyer Romy. And Romy is seriously lamenting how unlucky she's been in love and how she has thus far failed to find a suitable life partner. And then her mother, who I have to say takes a, you know, a very healthy interest in her daughter's love life, introduces Romy to an article which is called The Maths of Finding the Perfect Partner. So Romy begins to debunk the idea of passion and physical attraction as accurate predictors of a successful relationship. And the more she reads, the more she's convinced that she will default to her more analytical and rational self and she will apply a mathematical theory oh. to secure her a dependable and consistent match. So the mathematical theory in question is the theory of optimal stopping. Oh. I'm not sure I should even try to explain it in detail, so I'm going to do so very superficially. The theory responds to the problem of when is it the right time to choose to take an action, i.e. when should you act, when should you stop, or when oh. should you should start something, based on a series of randomly observed variables. It's apparently used in gambling, but... As far as relationships are concerned, it's sort of the tipping point at which you choose the next best person who comes along in order to maximise the likelihood of them being your best match, basically. Wow. So it goes something like this. Based on the total number of people you intend to date, which of course might be calculated by reference to your age or the number of people that you regularly date, you have to reject the first 37% of people... Oh. 
and then you choose the next person who is better than anyone you've dated before, which perhaps I would have just done it, you know, yes. I would have just done, let's just do that. But yeah. anyway. This seems to rely on you dating an awful lot of people. It does, <laughs> it does, it does, which people do these, these days. days. Yes, yeah. they do. The author, Elodie Cheeseman, was born in Canberra. She went to the University of Sydney. I should just add, she has also been the associate clerk to the Chief Justice, Susan Kiefel of the High Court. So it's just a little little bit of trivia, which is interesting. She later studied at Oxford and while she was there, she listened to a TED talk by the mathematician Hannah Fry about applying mathematical theories to the pursuit of love. And that's the sort of inspiration for the book. Yeah. And she was interested in the fact that, you know, obviously love and compatibility are often sort of quantified in intangible terms rather than as science and data. So that was her starting point. I really enjoyed some of the supporting characters in the book. And sadly, uh, a couple of them are all too familiar. Um, She has a posse of young lawyer friends, Paloma and Cameron are her besties, all of them overworked and under the thumb of Ah. demanding bosses. Romy works very hard as an employment lawyer in a large firm and, and she's one of the junior lawyers who's drowning in paperwork and deadlines, actual and virtual. And some of the lawyers, younger lawyers, are beginning to think, stereotypically, you know, do I really is want this? this? For me? Is this yeah. for me? Oh, okay. So it is a bit of a stereotype, but I think she's created that sort of odious boss and large firm feel really authentically. Oh, okay. You know, it's really very good. The other characters I love in the book are her parents. It's a really real and loving and tender portrait of parents. Oh. She said that she has based the parents partly on her own. She said she would never go to her father for love advice (laughs) at all, but he can be relied upon for the dad jokes, whereas her mother is quite analytical and practical about relationships. And so so that's quite interesting, really, when you read these characters. And, of course, as you'd expect, Romy is faced with different love matches, different choices in the book, and there is a lot of analysis and maybe we might say a good deal of overthinking about their suitability, which I think is quite typical of some young people, that sort of getting bogged down in the analysis of... Well, I can remember people when we were young who did a bit of overthinking, so I'm not (laughs) sure that's a new human (laughs) trait, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to say anything about the young men, and they are young men in this book, save that I don't think dating is as easy for young people anymore. I'm not convinced that it is. I mean, I think, you know, I think social media has had an impact. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. a lot of social interaction that isn't face-to-face. And it's interesting because Elodie has also said that she grew up on a diet of rom-coms, and that's exactly how I would sort of describe this book. It has that feel about it. It has some really classic rom-com ingredients. You know, it starts with this fairly ordinary and relatable problem. You know, there's comic situations, the people who are polar opposites. There's also sort of situations and characters that seem, I don't want to say uh, hammed up, but sort of enlarged. Okay. Highlighted almost. And there's the inevitable pride and prejudice, which is also part of most rom-coms. There's lots of current popular culture references. 
So I, I don't want to trivialise it by saying it's light. It just really is a masterclass in rom-com. Right. That's the best way to describe it. It sounds delightful. And it's thought-provoking. You know, it's yeah, thought-provoking it's for young people and, it, and it's perceptive. And, and you know, you really do sense a genuine desire in Romy to find someone, yeah. you know, that, oh. that, that she's compatible with. So I can really recommend that. It's Love in Theory by Elodie Cheeseman and it's published by Macmillan. And what's your next book, Virginia? My second book is very different again. This is The Labyrinth by Amanda Laurie. Amanda is in her 70s. She lives in Tasmania and this is about her eighth novel and she's written many essays uh, and she's also worked in academia teaching writing and she recently won the Miles Franklin Literary Award for this book. Oh which is a $60,000 prize and it does carry, you know, considerable prestige yes. in Australia and elsewhere. And I have only read one of her earlier books, which was Camille's Bread, and that was years ago. But I can still remember the feel of that story and this has a very similar feel. Oh, okay. Amanda Laurie is very deft at creating a very soft, gentle vibe it's described by other people as meditative, quiet, that sort of thing. It's it's very, very beautiful, very easy to read. I just don't really know how she does it. It's a bit magical. This novel, The Labyrinth, has this same sensibility for me and I absolutely loved it. But it's quiet. Very quiet. I'll elaborate a bit on what happens and you'll get a sense of it, I think. So it's a short novel and it's about a woman named Erica She's an older woman and her son has committed a terrible, terrible crime and gone to jail. And that's not a spoiler, it's on the back jacket. And he obviously has very significant mental health issues. Mm. And Erica moves to a regional coastal area in order to be close to his prison so that she can visit him once a fortnight, which is the permitted number of visits, even though those visits are entirely unrewarding and very distressing. So she buys an old beach shack and moves in and gradually sort of unpacks all her boxes. And then she gradually starts to have the odd wave hello and the odd chat with her neighbours, gradually starts to get to know mm -hmm. all the characters in this regional coastal area. And they are a bunch of colourful characters and none of them know who her son is because she's got a different surname and that's sort of key I think for her and she decides uh, shortly after she's sort of settled in a bit that she's going to build a labyrinth in her garden and serendipitously she hears of and then subsequently organises a meeting with a local foreigner he seems to be a, a backpacker. He has a slightly obscure past. We're not sure about his visa status. Okay. But he's a stonemason and he eventually agrees to help her build her labyrinth. And when he meets her, he's he tells her that he's a, a very talented stonemason and he shows her his album. Yeah. And she's a bit dubious. She thinks, oh, you know, are these his pictures or has he just taken someone else's? But it becomes apparent that he really is an amazing stonemason. He's trained with his father and grandfather and all his uncles in a European country and he has a great eye. He can do things without measuring and all sorts of things. I didn't actually know really what a labyrinth was. Yes, I was assuming you meant a cave. 
No. There are references to a labyrinth at Chartres, and you sort of need to Google it yeah. to see, but I would describe them as being sort of a bit like a maze, you know, garden mazes oh, okay. that are built of hedges, but they're made of stone or other materials, and they're, they're just intricate patterns, and you can often walk them. So you need a bit of land, you need a bit of space and on your religious. property. I'm not sure they possibly do have uh, mm. a religious background. There's a bit of debate between her and the stonemason about what to put in the middle of it. So as you walk around it, there's a sort of a centrepiece and she talks about putting a fountain and he says no. And he's quite firm and he says no, it needs to be plain and clear. And so that's quite quite a cute debate that goes on between them. But it's a rather lovely relationship that, that mm. forms between the two of them. Now, Erica and her brother had grown up living in the grounds of an asylum uh, her father had been the psychiatrist oh, wow. in the asylum and they had lived on the grounds of the asylum and there had been a labyrinth there. Yeah. And so that's where the idea for this springs from. And she has sort of a slightly traumatic backstory there that ties all that together. So it's a very quiet and a spare story about her progress from buying the house and moving in was a complete pleasure to read. Even though it may sound depressing because of the sun, it doesn't read or it didn't certainly didn't to me read at all as a depressing story. The quote at the beginning of the book is, the cure for many ills, noted Jung, is to build something. And that's really what Erica is doing. It's her therapy. Yeah. She's coping with the circumstances that she's found herself in by building something, building a labyrinth. In her grief over what her son has done, she has cut herself off from all of her friends and family from wherever she was living before. And it becomes apparent that it sort of suits her to start again in this coastal community where no one knows her circumstances and they don't really even ask. No. And there's something almost redemptive about the process of her and the stonemason, you know, going through the steps of arguing about the design and the size of the thing and planning it and then getting some stones and laying it out and then actually implementing and building it. There's a delightful character. He's a curmudgeonly old neighbour who he's horrible, really, but she... <laughs> rather perversely decides to toot her horn and wave at him every day. He sits out on the (laughs) veranda. He's got serious problems. And you would never think that he would ever come around. And once they start building this labyrinth, this curmudgeonly neighbour appears. Um, He's getting very interested. Yeah. 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 And then you realise that all the neighbours seem to know, you know, what they're building and, and, and start showing an interest in progress. And there's just something very graceful about all these rather broken people joining together in a project that's for no real purpose. It's just to create something yeah. lovely and distraction to do almost. It. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel the weight or the burden of her not being able to share? I think it suited her. It felt yes. right. I, okay. I mean, I think she gets the balance just right between you feeling the burden of her grief, but that's done very quietly. It's not belaboured at all and it's not really heavily articulated. No, it's more in what she doesn't say or what she yes, doesn't say. It's there. The early it's always nights, there. Or, just yeah. an early night where she has a glass of water and isn't yeah. up to making a meal and goes to bed. You know, that sort of thing. Yes. It's, it's not burdensome at all. Very clever. So it's beautifully done, absolutely beautifully done. It's it's more what's not said and 
I think there's a real craft to that. So that was The Labyrinth by Amanda Laurie, and that's published by Text Publishing. Great. What was your next one, Lou? I read The River Mouth by Karen Herbert, which is published by a local publisher here in Western Australia, Fremantle Press. I thought it wouldn't be a complete episode for Fanza without some outback crime. Mm. So it's doubly exciting to be able to talk about a book of the dingo noir genre <laughs> that is set here in Western Australia. So River Mouth is literally hot off the presses. It's due to be released on the 28th of September, but you can pre-order it now. Um, And as we know, in this pandemic world, books are being posted all over the world. Yeah. The story is set in a fictional town, Weymouth, on the West Australian coast, roughly 800 kilometres north of Perth. And the author, Karen Herbert, grew up in Geraldton. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that the book is arguably based somewhere in that region, Calbarry on the Murchison River Mouth or Geraldton or Greenough, but generally in in that region. The book opens with two deaths. Ten years ago, Sandra Davies grieves the death of her 15-year-old son, Darren, who dies on the riverbank below some limestone cliffs. And in the present day, she is now grieving the death of her best friend, Barbara, who's been found dead in a remote part of the Pilbara, which, of course, is another 800 kilometres or so north. But the really shocking discovery for both Sandra and Barbara's family is that 10 years ago, DNA was found under Darren's fingernails and the tests now confirm that it's Barbara's DNA. (gasps) Oh my goodness! (laughs) Um, So Sandra is faced, stating the obvious, obviously, with the possibility that her son may have been murdered by her best friend. Who's now dead. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So the novel alternates between the perspective of two characters, Sandra and Colin. Now, Colin is Barbara's son and he was also Darren's best mate at school. So just to mix things up a bit, it it also alternates between events from Sandra's perspective in the present day and the past. And 10 years ago. Yeah, and likewise Colin. Right. So, of course, in the present day, Sandra is no longer with her husband. Uh, He left a year after their son died. And, of course, now she has the shocking news about Barbara. And also in the past, from Sandra's perspective, you know, we have the grief of losing her son, but also that was a time when her and Barbara shared chats about their children and they were colleagues at work. So you would be revisiting everything. Yes. And likewise with Colin, he's now 25. He left Weymouth after year 10 to go to school in the city. He got a scholarship to university and he now has a job in the city. And, of course, he returns to Weymouth upon the news of his mother's death. But 10 years ago, he's a 15-year-old at school in Weymouth, hanging out with Darren, uh, you know, his mates on the weekend and after school and getting up to no good. So it's not as complicated as it seems because Herbert manages to slip really well between the two time periods and between the two characters. It's very smooth and she's able to sort of plot the events that took place in the past and information that that is now coming to light in the present and it moves the, the reader towards resolution. And as we've come to expect with dingo noir landscapes, It's front and centre in this book. You know, the bush playground that the boys are largely left to roam in is pretty wonderful. You know, there's the cliffs, there's caves, there's rock ledges, riverbanks, cycle tracks along the river, dense bush. There's the ocean when they're lucky enough to join Darren's dad on his boat and eat crayfish sandwiches. And 
for something that was quite special for me. There are endless cups of Milo and milk after school, oh, which yes. I just loved. I counted six <laughs> in the first half of the book. Whenever Darren or Colin <laughs> are home, rushing in, rushing out, they're at the fridge pouring a, a, a glass of Milo. So yeah, and that whole, yeah. you know, waiting till some of it dissolves yeah. but leaving some yeah. of it on top, it's just fantastic. And it's interesting because obviously two of the main characters in the book are Darren and Colin, are the boys, but you do feel that this is a book mostly about the women in the town. You know, there's the mothers at the centre of their families, at the centre of the grief, there's the female friendships, there's the nurses at the hospital that really get to see the raw edge of the town. Um, there's First Nations women and then the spectre of rape and domestic violence is omnipresent mm. in the book. And it's quite a big ensemble of characters, but Karen Herbert really creates this sort of authentic small town atmospheric sort of feeling and it's recognisably an Australian country town. Oh, wow. Although it I think it could transport yes. to any small town. Yeah, sure. Sandra grew up in the town in Weymouth and so her primary and high school friends, some of whom went away and then came back, they're now the nurses, the oh, okay. policemen, the hairdresser, the bank oh, manager, school yeah. teachers in the town. And all of their children have been living together and have been at school together. Uh, they're at the local tennis club, they're at barbecues, they're all enmeshed in each other's lives. So inevitably there's the gossip and the rumours and misinformation and busybodying. But, of course, vital information is missed and there are plenty of secrets and, and terrible consequences. I don't, you know, like with all crime yeah, books, yeah, there's not a lot much. we can no, say. No. And what is very exciting is that Spark Plug Films love this book and they've optioned it for film and television. Oh, so it's so very exciting. So hopefully we'll have a... Oh, I'll have to read it before it becomes... A screen adaptation. Yes, itself. absolutely. So I, yeah. I have to know. Yes. So that's the Rivermouth Karen Herbert Fremantle Press. Oh, that sounds fantastic, Lou. And what's your third book? Um, and so my third and final book is, oh, I loved this book so much. It's called After Story by Larissa Berendt. Larissa Berendt is a really interesting lady. Uh, it's really worth Googling her, actually. She's an Indigenous lawyer and academic. She's written three novels. This is her third novel. But she seems to be able to do everything. She's involved in the arts. She's on various boards. She's a documentary maker, a filmmaker. She's involved in uh, Indigenous literacy. She's just amazing. If you, it's, She almost does too many things to be able to take them all in when you yes. first start to read her biography. And she seems to be able to turn her hand to anything. And she's been to Harvard. She's got a master's in law from Harvard. She's appeared in some very interesting legal mm. cases. So she seems to be able to turn her hand to anything. She's just really quite an impressive person. And this story is about a young woman named Jasmine taking her mother, Della, on a literary tour of Britain. But it's so much more than that. So Jasmine and her mother are Indigenous and the pairing of Aboriginal culture with British literary history is completely original mm, absolutely. and fresh and I think very clever. So the story begins with Jasmine finding out that the friend who was going to be going on the literary tour of the UK with her has had to pull out of the trip at the last minute. A fabulous job offer has come up and she needs to start 
that job so she can't go. So Jasmine, with some reservations, <laughs> invites her mother Della to come along instead. And Jasmine and her mother have a complicated relationship and I would describe it as an uneasy truce. So there is a lot that is not talked about and there's a lot that needs to be talked about. 25 years earlier, Jasmine's sister and Della's daughter had gone missing. Uh, This is on the back cover, it's not a spoiler, and it has left a terrible scar on everyone in the extended family, but it's not really ever spoken about. Della is not really literary at all, and she has no real interest in any of these literary sites that they're going to that the tour is going to take in. But she agrees to join her daughter as a means of trying to reclaim some closeness and some connection with her daughter. Della wants a closer connection with Jasmine, but for a number of reasons, she just seems to be unable to change the patterns of a lifetime. Jasmine, on the other hand, has grown up, moved away from their small hometown. She's become a lawyer, like the author, and she pretty much never wants to come back again. She wants to separate herself from her extended family as much as possible, literally and figuratively, and she wants desperately to be seen by her mother and perhaps by a sister that's back home, a a still-living sister, as someone who's made a success of her life and has risen above the racism and the very low expectations of the people in her town. So the literary tour begins and it's a complete hoot. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, because Larissa Berent has created a bus full of great characters. It's sort yes. of this mini bus and they're all stuck together with each other for 10 days. How horrendous. <laughs> yes, yes. And she's just written this most fabulous dynamic with all the various different people on the tour. So I'll just tell you about a couple of them just for fun because it, it does have some really fun light Um, moments. So there's the tour guide who is an actor who is between jobs uh, and he's been in an episode of Midsummer Murders. (laughs) Just one, Virginia? (laughs) Just the one. He tells them all what the episode was and, you know, what I don't think he was the murderer. And then there's this completely repellent professor who expounds on everything in this incredibly irritating way. And he's very dismissive of women writers such as Jane Austen and Virginia Woolf. He belittles the tour guide. He quotes Keats' poetry, (laughs) just to show off basically, and he has a very downtrodden, silent wife. Uh, He's just the sort of character that you love to hate. He sounds odious. Yeah, but it was always fun whenever he spoke up or whenever he was in the scene because the things that Larissa had him say were just so cleverly done. I just watched it in amazement and delight. It was very, very clever. There are also two women from Boston who fawn all over him and they're always late back to the bus <laughs> and they're oblivious to the fact that they're causing everyone annoyance and making them late oh. for the next destination. So that just gives you a taste of the dynamic that goes on. So it's, But it's done in a light way. It's not you don't sort of sit there screaming at the page. It's very funny. So the tour starts with the Shakespeare, Samuel Pepys, Dickens, Virginia Woolf, Fita Sackville-West, Jane Austen oh, and so fantastic. on. fantastic. It's wonderful. It's so fun. Do they go to Sissinghurst? You oh, jumped the gun. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No. 
Um, they do. So as the tour progresses, each of Della and Jasmine reflect back on their lives in Australia, which is exactly what you do when you're overseas. Mm. And this book just captures perfectly that way that you look at your life and what's working well and what isn't and how you could make some changes when you get home. You have time to pause yes, and, and it's think, like you're don't you? Back with a bird's eye view yeah, of your own certainly. life. Yeah. And she really captures that absolutely perfectly. Uh, it absolutely made me want to do a literary tour when we can travel again, mm. although not in a bus. <laughs> Yes. Uh, like these people. Unless they're people you can choose to yeah. be with. Oh, my goodness. And Larissa has included full details of the tour in the back and Jasmine's reading list. And I think there's a map. Yes, there's a map oh, in the fantastic. front. fantastic. I can't um, wait to read this. Yeah, it's really, really great. Della, who is in her 50s, I would say, she seems very set in her ways. I don't think she's really ever left this little small town. Mm. And she certainly seems very set in her ways to Jasmine. And she becomes interested in gardening after visiting some of the gardens, especially Sissinghurst. <laughs> Sorry. Can you remember our day there? I can, oh. I can. Yeah, very um, special. I think everybody who visits Sissinghurst yeah. comes away resolved to create a garden. <laughs> yes. But that's what travels An autumn for. and a spring yeah, garden. Yeah. And a white garden. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So the story alternates between the perspectives of the daughter Jasmine and the mother Della in a very clever way because there is the occasional overlap where they're both recounting the same scene. So for most of it, the alternations drive the story forward and leave the previous scene behind. But just occasionally there's a momentary Venn diagram overlap and they each remember a scene quite differently, yes. sort of to suit themselves. Yes. So the daughter really focuses on Della's shame and she yes. does have some shame. And the mother, Della, focuses on the daughter's distance. And in this way, I think the reader gets to see perhaps a truer truth yes. than if we just saw one person's perspective. Yeah. And I really loved the way she accomplished it. It was very deft and very subtle and... And shouldn't always assume really. that the daughter is right. Or that the mother is right. Yeah, like neither of them is, yeah. is, yeah, is entirely right. Yeah. Mm. And you, you sort of could see that there, there was probably a bit of truth in both, but there yes. was probably a third truth or maybe yes. even a fourth truth. Yes. So the whole book was a joy to read, even though it does have a very serious side to it with the sort of uncomfortable look at the treatment of Indigenous people in Australia. Uh, I think Larissa has managed to get the tone just right and the development of the mother-daughter relationship and the breaking down of barriers was really lovely. I loved it. I, I would highly recommend it. If you've enjoyed Tara June Winch's yes. The Yield or Melissa Lukashenko's Too Much Lip, I would say this is an excellent addition to yeah, the talent Yeah, I can't wait pool. to read it. It looks fantastic. Yeah. So that was After Story by Larissa Berend by University of Queensland Press. And I do want to ask if she's actually taken her mother on a literary tour. I don't think she has. <laughs> I think she did a literary fiction. tour, but I think she did it with her partner. Yeah, fantastic. She did it with Michael Lavash, her okay. partner. Fantastic. And he proposed at the end of the trip. Oh, that's how in fantastic. the acknowledgements. Oh, wow. I did the literary tour with Michael Lavash. He proposed at the end of the trip. He's been unwavering in supporting my talents. Oh, yeah. How fantastic. Yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, brilliant. What was your last one? Oh, Luna? my last one 
is the much acclaimed and highly publicised book from publishers Fourth Estate, We Were Not Men by Campbell Matterson. There was so much hype yes, with this book, yes. wasn't there? And it you know, sounds great. We might have a chat about that because I don't, it's not always a good thing. We know from other books that definitely. it can be a negative. I don't think it has been with this book, okay. but yeah, I'm always a bit nervous when there's... When your expectations are too high. Well, also I'm nervous for the author as well because, oh, yeah. you know, it creates expectations and then, you know, reviews and you sort of think, well, anyway. Yeah. This is the story of John and Eden Hardacre. They're twins living in Newport, a suburb of Melbourne, near Williamstown, with their mum and dad. And none of what I'm going to say is a spoiler. It's all on the back jacket and in the press. Publicity, I mean. There is a terrible car accident. They're all in the car. The twins survive, but their parents do not. Right. The book opens several years on. The twins are young adults, and we learn that the relationship between them is now fractured. And then the book goes straight back to the scene of the accident and follows what happened to them after the night of the crash as nine-year-olds towards their young adult years. Wow. So after they leave hospital, Eden, who requires a lot more recovery than John, they move to live with their grandmother, step-grandmother as she's referred to, Bobby, who lives an hour and a half north of Melbourne in Flowerdale. Bobby is hands down my favourite character in this book. She's wacky, she's warm, she's wise, she's fiercely intelligent. Apparently she's the first female stockbroker in Australia and she's usually upbeat but she's also desperately sad and grieving the loss of her husband Jack as well, the boy's grandfather. And she wasn't really ready to parent two nine-year-old boys. Wow. She's an alcoholic, mostly good-humoured, sometimes sad but always wise. And possibly the boys are the best thing that has happened to her for a while. So from the get-go, Bobby shares pronouncements about her life. She sort of (laughs) has these pearls of wisdom (laughs) with the boys. And they're often delivered out of random, (laughs) you know, randomly, out of absolute nowhere, unconnected to the context of a conversation. But somehow they they fit. <laughs> it's, you know, the boys are initially very gentle with her. They listen. They're usually wide-eyed when they're young. <laughs> and they, they get used to Bobby's ways. You know, they get used to the fact that it's sometimes accompanied by a bottle of wine. They don't always respond to what she says, but you you know they're taking the advice in. And as they grow up, Bobby is, you know, she's used as a very interesting device in the book because she she fills the spaces of thoughts and feelings that teenage boys sometimes find hard to express right. okay. outwardly. Uh, so she sort of responds to things that they must be thinking. She's, it's very, very clever. The boys, not surprisingly, want to be in the home that they shared with their mum and dad. So they broker a truce with Bobby and they live with her in Newport during the week and they return to the country property on Fridays at Flowerdale. And as you would expect of young boys at nine, after the accident they are obviously preoccupied with the thoughts of their parents. The twin John Hardacre is the narrator of the book So everything we learn is through his lens. And although they are twins, we can't obviously assume they're thinking the same thing. Ah. But we can assume that they know each other better than anyone. So John is extremely in tune and alert to Eden's emotions and behaviour. They're particularly thinking and talking about their mother 
which is obviously not unusual at nine. And this is partially because in Bobby's home, there's a photograph of their mother when she was a young girl, which was taken by her father, Bobby's Jack, apparently at a swimming meet. And their mother is smiling for the camera and she's holding a gold ribbon. And we discover that she had been her age group champion for both freestyle and butterfly. So, as serendipity would have it, following the car accidents, the boys are told that swimming will really help both of them in their recovery. And in many ways, it's something that connects them to their mother, so they begin to train. So when they're at Flowerdale at Bobby's property, they swim in the creek. But during the week in Newport, they obviously have to find somewhere else to swim. And the Newport waterfront faces across the bay, across the sort of freight and shipping channel to the Melbourne CBD. So they've got the Westgate Bridge on one side and it's dominated by a the single chimney of a power station. And there's an outlet channel adjacent to the power station where the hot water meets the sea and it creates this strong current and it's called the Warmies. Oh. And Bobby certainly doesn't intend this to happen, but she takes them there to visit the waterfront one day and Eden jumps in. Oh. And from then on, the boys rise early after uh, before school, ride their bike to train against the current wow. at the Warmies. And the water's glows and it's dirty and it coats their bodies but it's a great place for them to train so water is completely omnipresent in this book there's obviously been comparisons with boy swallows universe the trent dalton novel sort of sense of magical realism and but you know the the water is magical in this book the way the light hits the water the reflections the movement of the boys bodies through the water the way the water feels the warmth and the cold, it's its everywhere. And as Eden says to his twin early in the book with reference to their mother, it's like she's in there with me. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So in that respect, the book is very sensory and it's not just the water. It's rich with sound, with touch, and to an extent with smell as well. And I've sort of had a while to think about this and, and I hope I'm not overthinking it, but I think one's experience of trauma is often associated with, with the senses. Yes. So you remember the sounds, the smell and the feel of traumatic events Mm. and they inhabit your memories and, of course, they become triggered at, you know, the strangest of times. So it felt really right for this story. Mm. And it's interesting, the presence of water in the book because it's set against the period of the bushfires in Victoria. Oh, gosh. The smell of the smoke as well. Again, I, I really can't say a lot about the plot. It's a very, very big story. You know, we meet John and Eden at nine. We stay close with them till they're 17. So it's sort of this really important coming of age period for young men, let alone having to grow up while you're traversing the emotions of trauma. And as you would expect, apart from the larger than life character of Bobby, there's some other really significant characters in the book's lives, some neighbours and school friends. I can say because it's on the back cover and part of the publicity, when they're a little older, there is a girl, Carmelina, whom they both love. Oh. And that has consequences. It's a magical book. I absolutely loved it. And a bit like the first book you read, I I couldn't put it down. Yeah. Yeah, It's really, really beautiful. It delivers a soccer punch, but it's it's just beautiful. So that's Campbell Madison. We Were Not Men, that's published by Fourth Estate. I've got to read all of yours now. Yeah, well, likewise. (laughs) We just have to do a swap. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I just wanted to mention also for fans and listeners, because I know that ballet is part of the program of events that is on offer. And uh, many of the fans and listeners will be familiar with the Australian ballet and the internationally renowned ballet dancer, David McAllister. Yeah. Who danced all over the world. And then he became the artistic director of the Australian Ballet until March 2020. He released a book post-retirement, which came out last year in December, called Saw, A Life Freed by Dance. And I wanted to mention that you can access the ABC Radio podcast Conversations and uh, Richard Feidler interviewed David McAllister on the 19th of August. Oh, this wow. year, and it's a, it's a lovely interview. So I just thought fans of yeah, that's a great listeners one, might be interested in that. It, it, it is radio, but it's on the podcast app, mm. so it's very easy for you Fantastic. to get all over the world. We'd like you to listen to our podcast, Diving In, but we also recommend lots of others as well. Yeah. Well, that's all from us today. We hope you're all participating in the Fans of Fringe Festival in person and online and also getting ready to enjoy a season of events from the British Council. It's been an incredibly challenging two years for artists around the oh world. Oh, boy. It hasn't sure it? has. Yeah. They've not been able to offer live performances. I mean, on one level, I think it's pushed creativity to its limits because they've had to find new ways mm. of connecting with audiences, haven't they? they've been incredibly clever at yeah. thinking of things yeah. to do, particularly using social media. Yeah, no, really good. Mm. But as your physical freedoms improve, um, we hope you'll book some tickets and be inspired, amazed, transformed and uplifted by the events that you attend. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in.